today we are going to have our second in the series, and Brian will be talking about politics, Christianity, and the election. Uh, those of you who have been coming to Pathways know that Brian is a familiar face to us. He is a minister. He is an ordained Presbyterian minister. He is, he works through the Covenant Presbytery. And if you don't know his face, you do know his voice. Brian is, uh, very active and is, uh, he was telling me he's now 50% type at KCUR and he does State House Blend. He is uh, Steve Kraske when Steve's not there. He's Gina Kaufman when Gene is not there. And uh, he does a wonderful job of making us think differently and giving us new thoughts. And I would like to welcome Brian. And he's going to he said questions and answers throughout. He'll stay just a little bit afterward. And we are blessed to have him today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much for that uh Excellent, lovely introduction. I, I am uh, humbled to be uh, Steve Kraske when he's not there. Uh, as I'll put, I may put that on my business card, actually. Um, uh, I'm really glad to be with all of you again. Um, as Katie said, it really one of the things that uh, I love about being asked to teach on this topic is that it really brings together two of my passions and actually my two professional lives as well. Um, I was pastor of the Parkville Presbyterian Church for 13 years. Um, I, I still feel like I'm a pastor at heart, uh, and the, what I understand that to mean is that it's about talking about matters of faith and matters of belief in the context of the real world. Um, what does Not just what do we believe, but what does what we believe mean for how we should live? Um, that's what I think ministry is, uh, in a congregational setting, often about. Um, but now that I am also half-time at KCUR, uh, as a, a journalist, mostly covering politics for KCUR these days, uh, I find, um, see, unlike most of you, I'm actually not tired of talking about politics right now. <laughs> so, um, so, so you get to spend the next hour doing a little of that. But, but being able to bring those things together, I think, is a challenge. And while I, it's, uh, that has evolved even over the last several elections, what that looks like, the, the interplay between religion and politics, and we'll talk about how that has changed, but I think, in some ways, uh, the fact that religion has not been a, the central focus of so much of what has happened in this last election gives us a chance to sort of step back and evaluate uh, a little bit of what role our faith, our values, and the way other people's faith and values come into uh, intersection with our own what impact that has on our civic life and how we engage around matters of politics. So I hope we can cover all of that, along with some history today. Uh, here's my plan for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, my plan, there it is. Um, it's to talk briefly about the, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm failing as a, uh, as a technological person here. Uh, my plan is to talk briefly about the history of religion and politics in America. That could be about a 12-week class, uh, so we're going to do it in about 12 minutes instead. Um, we're going to talk about today's political landscape and the role of religion in, in that, and in, especially around elections. We're going to talk what, about uh, civic engagement theologically, what we as Christians believe about that. And then finally, we're going to take a look at some specific issues in the current election cycle and how those are playing out uh, across the country. Um, let me start, though, with some questions for you. What is religion? Quickly, well, how would you define religion? What are religious matters? Belief in a higher power. So things that are related to higher powers. I think that's, that's fair. A guide to live by. Day by day. Anyone else? Yeah. Usually religion implies some systematic organization of beliefs. So there's, there's belief and there's how to live, and then there's also the organization of those beliefs and how you live. What's politics? Oh, this is, these are my dogs. <laughs> that is... As, as pleased as I am for you to see my dogs, that was not my intent. Politics. What's politics? People. People. 
Interesting. Uh-oh, that sounds a lot like the definition of religion. <laughs> system of beliefs in something. What's politics? I think they're directly parallel, including the reference to the orthodoxy of it. So there's uh, the, the idea that there's a system of things you're supposed to believe or ways you're supposed to live. There's an orthodox understanding. That was our discussion about religion, but maybe that's true in politics as well. Politics is people in community, how they govern themselves. It's become more of an orthodoxy thing. How are they different then? Since you all seem to think they're the same. One is personal and one is communal. I don't know if I agree with that. As far as you can't put your own personal beliefs on everybody else. You can't put your own personal beliefs on everybody else. Not everyone agrees. <laughs> it's just a matter of who the higher power is. The higher power in politics is different than the higher power in religion, or is it? Oh. One is about your internal life, and one is about life right here. You're shaking your head no. I think religion is about life out here too, she says. But politics... <laughs> does politics stop uh, outside the body? I think, see, see, these are the questions, and I, I'm, I'm, I think we're enjoying this, this conversation because uh, it's starting to complexify, which is not a word, but it's a word I've found very helpful. It complexifies religion and politics, doesn't it? We actually uh, have a harder time separating the two. Even those of us who say we believe in the firm separation of church and state, even we have a hard time sometimes knowing exactly where that line is. So what does it mean then to call the United States a Christian nation? Or as is probably more common these days, to say we are a nation built on Judeo-Christian values means we have faith. Okay. So, okay, so you so so how many of you embrace the how many of you when you think about the United States are willing to call it we are a Christian nation? I hear no. I see a few hands though. Okay. Um is that historically a good description? Some of you are willing to come along to a yes for that, but some of you are still saying no. Let's talk about that. This is the Declaration of Independence. Anyone remember this? Were any of you there? No, okay. Um, when in, this, is the, this is the preamble, or the, yeah, the, the opening. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, sorry, <laughs> are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is that a Christian statement? Is it a religious statement? Is it? It believes in a God. Well, nature's God. It believes there's a creator who is somehow the origin of human rights. It's incredibly nonspecific about this God. Well, right. I mean, is that an accident? Was this just the, the florid pen of the founders? Or was this actually a, a theologically intentional statement? So if you believe, uh, if, you, if you agree with the reading of history that, that talks about Thomas Jefferson's 
faith, for example, uh, as, a, as a deist. Deism being a, a belief that God exists, but, but God engages with humanity in, a, in the most theoretical and distant of ways. That God sort of set the world in motion and let it, let it go. Right, I, 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 I agree, and we're not going to go into all of that detail, but, but there, is a, there is a clear intentionality here to make this a statement that I would argue is, captures a, sort of a common assumption, but is actually as, about as unreligious as they could have been. At least it's as nonspecific as it could have been it clearly could have used language that was more explicitly Christian. The majority of signers of the document would have probably been comfortable with that language. They didn't use it. They didn't reject religion, and they never did in any of the things they, they, they put out. But they didn't tie the identity of the young republic to any particular religion. I think the founders would have been fairly shocked to hear some rhetoric today that talks about a Christian nation. At least the way that that, what that is, implies, or is taken to imply. Eventually they had to, to enshrine this further in the Constitution. So the First Amendment, as you know, says in part, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the meaning of these phrases is not, it was not concluded in, uh, in the, the 1780s. It was, in fact, interpreted by, court, by the Supreme Court through the centuries. But the two clauses are the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. You familiar with these? This may be review for some of you. The Establishment Clause, uh, the idea, it, tells, it basically says what the state cannot do. It cannot establish... A, a, a state church, and it can't do things that are basically the same thing as establishing a state church. So, you, for, so for example, the the prayer in schools cases. Schools can't public schools can't lead people in prayer that is sectarian in nature because that would essentially be saying this is a Christian school or this is a Jewish school, or because you're you're using public space to impose a religious view on people, whether that is their their religion or not. That's the Establishment Clause. The Free Exercise Clause, though, says there's certain things the state cannot prohibit, religious belief and practice of, of various kinds, unless there's a compelling state interest to prohibit it. This is where we came down uh, as a country. Religion can be freely practiced, and the state can't establish one religion above the others. They rooted that in, uh, in political theory uh, of the time uh, and further developments. John Locke, of course, some of you are familiar with. But, but the history to me is more interesting than the philosophy that underlaid it. Um, and, and our ancestors um, owe a lot to the Baptists, our Reformed and Congregational and Christian ancestors, owe a lot to the Baptists. The Baptists... Uh, founded Rhode Island as they were fleeing religious persecution in Massachusetts. I'm oversimplifying the history a little bit there, but that's not so far off. Um, essentially, the Baptists were the first advocates for religious liberty. So when you see that the Southern Baptist Church has in Washington, D.C., the this commission on religious liberty, and you sort of shake your head and say... <laughs> That doesn't seem like that fits. If you, you if it seems like they're the the, the religious, ad, it seems like a group of religious advocates. But but the history is that the Baptist Church was these were the oppressed ones. They needed the protection of the the, the Bill of Rights, and they advocated for it. Um, wow, I don't know what is wrong with my uh, my clicker. This is the governance manual of the Synod of Mid America. I don't. <laughs> You want to talk about that instead today? <laughs> it was Thomas Jefferson having to sort of clarify what he meant 
where the famous phrase comes from about a wall of separation. And he was writing a letter to a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, saying, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only. So to your point, that it's not, uh, that the government is about actions, not about what's on the inside, and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Now, what do you think of that? That phrase gets used a lot. Does anyone think that goes too far? Does anyone think that that statement is problematic? Yeah, you do? How come? What she said is that she doesn't think it's possible to separate your beliefs and your morals from the decisions that you make. So when we talk about a separation, to finish her sentence, uh, this, so when we talk about a separation between church and state, it's a, it's a very artificial separation on some level because the two are really influencing the other. Now people are raising their hands. How about back there? You make a strong argument that there should be a wall and a strong argument that there isn't really one. Someone else? So it doesn't violate the wall for your views to uh, influence government or for government to influence your views. What violates the wall would be for the government to take actions that, that infringed on your ability to practice or for you to impose your beliefs in requiring actions of others. So it's this action-belief uh, parity or, or division that seems to be at issue. Am I right? So there, were, there was other correspondence about this too. James Madison, uh, in ongoing dialogue with Jefferson about this, um, I mean, even after Jefferson was gone, uh, strongly guarded is the separation between religion and government in the Constitution of the United States. Practical distinction between religion and civil government is essential to the purity of both. And I, I believe when he said practical there, he didn't mean practical the way we usually use that word, like, well, it's just, it's just practical, it's just reasonable. I think he meant in terms of practice. A distinction of practice between religion and civil government is essential to the purity of both. So the founders believed that you had to separate the two in order to keep religion what religion should be and to keep government what government should be. That leaders of the church as well as leaders of the government should all want this because otherwise both of their jobs got messed up. <laughs> Messy at least. Are we making a mistake to take the oath of office with a hand on the Bible? Or we might ask, should we not be opening every day of Congress with a prayer? Or for that matter, a lot of city council meetings. Um, should we, are we wrong to put an American flag in the sanctuary? I know, don't, I won't open that can of worms. We're not. <laughs> I, lost, I lost members over that one at Parkville. Um, the, you, these, see, we, we talk about separation but we aren't fully able to do it. But you're not required to. Not required to put your hand on the Bible. House could vote not to open their day with prayer, but they won't. So let's, let's remember that our own denominational backgrounds <laughs> are part of this history. So I'm going to go ahead and remind you that your ancestors are Presbyterians, historically. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> Yes, if we hadn't been so conservative. Yes, I know. There, was, there were all kinds of reasons, and I don't blame you in the least. But, 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 but 
the church and state thing was, a, was, was an issue from the beginning. One of the signers, the only member of the clergy to sign the Declaration of Independence, Presbyterian minister, John Witherspoon, went on to be president of Princeton, well, the College of New Jersey, eventually Princeton University. Um, congregationalism, as it found itself at the beginning of the 19th century, was in many cases about groups of people fleeing the oppression of other organized religious groups. Not The Puritans, remember, came from England to avoid religious oppression and immediately set about setting up a holy state <laughs> that oppressed minority religions. So all of our religious history um, is, is tied up in this question of the separation of religion and politics. So with that in mind, we've now spent uh, 20 minutes talking about the first 20 years of our country's history of religion and politics. We're going to spend the next 10 minutes talking about the next 200 years of our, our country's history with religion and politics. Um, because there's really no significant moment of political transition and transformation over the course of the United States' history that isn't closely tied with religious division and debate, with leadership on the issue coming from the religious community. I would argue that uh, religion and politics, in spite of our talk about separation in church and state, have never really been separate. So let's talk about um, one of the nation's truly defining events. I have a feeling that David Von Draley, if he didn't talk about this, he certainly could have. He's written um, an, an amazing book about Lincoln um, and, his, and his leadership and his faith. Um, the question of slavery was a religious discussion as much as it was a political one. But problematically, the religious discussion and the justifications for action could be found on both sides. That is, pro-slavery camps and anti-slavery camps all used the Bible, all used religious justifications, organized through their churches, which demonstrated perhaps one of the problems with religion becoming too intertwined in politics. Getting back to Madison's point, when that happens, the purity of both is compromised. And I want you to remember this later on when we look at some of the ways that certain issues have divvied up the American population today, even in the current campaign, and the ways that positions seem to break down along religious lines, but don't seem to have anything to do with the religious views of the people. Other issues through history that have um, been examples of religion um, uh, changing the shape of the, the political landscape of America. Um, as the country became more religiously pluralistic, the involvement of these new and diverse religious communities in the political arena uh, was, was never without controversy. Uh, was a a weapon used against those groups and sometimes led to oppression of those groups in America. Catholics, as waves of immigrants came from Ireland and Italy and other places that were primarily Catholic, uh, you saw uh, fear-mongering. You saw hate speech directed at the religious beliefs of a growing segment of the American population. You saw it with the Jewish community. You saw it with, in some cases, groups of Protestants who grew apart from each other and questioned each other's uh, legitimacy to be engaging in the political arena based on things they believed. Particularly sects like Mormons, which to this day still face a certain degree of political discrimination on the basis of religion, Although, as we will see when we look at the makeup of Congress, they're doing pretty well. Um, civil rights and liberties, as the, the 20th century uh, 
included movements for justice of, in various ways, um, for women, for people of color. It was often the religious community, especially um, mainline Protestants, I have to say, who uh, took up large pieces of that social justice argument, especially uh, in, the, in the political arena, and most significantly, the African-American church, which was often the locus of organization for change to work for civil rights um, in America. There are other examples. I'm going to just quickly zip through them. Quickly zip through them. The rise of, I'll just stand on this side. Um, the rise of fundamentalism, evangelicalism. So um, now we're into my lifetime of political developments. Um, the 1980s uh, and the early 90s saw a rise in a politically engaged segment of conservative Christianity that um, in some ways had previously almost eschewed politics. Um, that has never changed back. Uh, and I, I think it's important to talk about that and its influence even in today's campaign. Um, and then finally, um, not finally, Israel. Um, Israel is one of those, uh, since, since the founding of Israel, uh, uh, religious groups in America have, have taken stands that have at times caused division, um, for, even within their own religious bodies. And then... Uh, in the political arena, um, you have found evangelical Christians um, being very pro-Israel. You have seen mainline Protestant churches just in the last five to ten years being very divided within themselves on, um, on Israel-Palestinian conversations. Um, and that all works its way up to a political uh, implication. Um, but I would say this is an area that is still, the religious community is not of one mind, but rather an example of division in the religious community. Let's move on to, uh, to talk for a minute about where that brings us today. Um, in some ways it isn't helpful to look at the actual composition of the body because it, it is, relies on what people say <laughs> about themselves. This doesn't tell you anything about how active these people are in practicing their faith. And if someone says, I'm a Presbyterian, it doesn't tell you whether they are from a super conservative Presbyterian denomination or a super liberal one. So take it for what it's worth. But here's the makeup of the current Congress. 58% Protestant in the House, 31% Catholic, 4% Jewish, 2% Mormon, and then about 2% a little of everything else. Seven members of the House refused to answer or said they didn't know. One said he or she was unaffiliated. So eight out of 435 say they are none, none of the above. In the Senate, 55 Protestant, 26 Catholic, 7 Mormon, 7 out of 100, 9 Jewish, 1 Buddhist, first ever, and 2 who are none of the above. How do you think that compares to the American population at large? How many, what do you think the American population is uh, in terms of, let's see, how many, how many do you think, what's the percentage of Americans who are Protestant? 47. Less than half. It's about 47. So Protestants are overrepresented in Congress. You know how many are Catholic in America? About 20%. Catholics are overrepresented in Congress. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> yes. Protestants are woefully underrepresented on the Supreme Court. I will say that. There's zero. <laughs> um, uh, Jewish population, how many in the United States? What percent? Two percent. Two percent of the American population is Jewish. Four and a half percent of the House, nine percent of the Senate. 
What percent of the American population is unaffiliated or says they are none of the above? 25. It's 23% as of four years ago. 23%. 2% of the House, 2% of the Senate. If there is a difference between our leadership and us, it is that they are more religious. Or they say they are. But something pressures them to say they are, even if that's the case. Even if they aren't really and they're just saying it, that still is really interesting, isn't it? They have to convey that they're religious in order to be elected, or they think they have to. But Americans don't feel the same compulsion to say they're religious when they're answering for themselves. What is that about? Is this idea of religion and politics in America just that, an idea? It's a vision we have of what we think we are about, but not necessarily what we are about in our own minds and hearts. Maybe. I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm just asking. But there are some telltale signs. This is a question from the Pew Research Center. They took this just before the last, the last midterm election in 2014. The question they asked, oh, it's in small print up there, was, do you think religion as a whole is increasing its influence on American life or losing its influence? Now, back in... 20, 2002, when they first asked the question, 52% said that it was losing its influence. In 12 years, that number became 72%. Three, quarters, three out of four Americans think religion is losing its influence. Which is interesting, but I think this is even more interesting. Question on the left is, should churches and other houses of worship keep out of political matters or express their views on day-to-day -day social and political questions? Back in 2001, 51% said they should express their views. And then that number started to drop in 2006. Dropped all the way to 40% in 2012, just four years ago. 55% said it should, it should keep out, and 40% said it should express its views. And two years later, the numbers reversed. The number of Americans who think that the religious world should get more involved in expressing its views, should be more politically engaged, is growing in America, even as... Americans are becoming less religious and they think the religion has lost its influence. Now, what do you make of that? Well, why do you say it's wake-up time? Wake up to do what? As a Christian? As a person of faith? What do you, what, how do you answer that? What does that mean for you? So you are saying that, that people seem to be crying out for people to say this is how it should be or this is what you should do, but not necessarily because, of, because that's the right thing, because of morals and values, not necessarily because this religion says you should do that. Right, because there's 23% that say they're not religious. I don't know, maybe. What do you think? So with the different religions believe different things. Uh, they're starting in very different places, including something as basic as the role of women in church or society. And so it's hard to say religion should have more voice when we don't know even what that we mean by that. The religions say different things. So while we are, all, we are segment in our beliefs, our separate religions, there is still something that is overall all of us. And... Right. It uses the language of religion when it says things like nature's God, but it isn't really religion. It's something that transcends religion. It's something that encompasses all the religions, 
and even the non-religious. I think that might be it. But the question is then, how do we live, right? How do we who are people of faith practice our religion in ways that authentically engage the political arena, as diverse as it is? So let's talk about it. This is 2016. There's an election in nine days. Thanks be to God. <laughs> but in nine days, some of you have already voted, right? So how many of you have already voted? You Kansans? Yeah, all right. Um, wow, that's like two-thirds of you. That was a, how many? Missouri's ballots, if you, if you claim that you're not going to be in the state on election day, you can vote now. Um, so let your conscience be your guide. Um, religious issues in 2016. What are the religious issues that, that matter to you? The religious issues. Immigration issues. How we welcome or don't welcome people to this country, including uh, Muslims, which has become an issue in this campaign. Syrians, how we welcome and take care of Syrian refugees in this country. Um, who are not all Muslims, but in many cases are, and that has been an issue in this campaign. Someone else had their hand up towards the back over there. Other religious issues, yeah. I think one of the issues is, uh, so programs like welfare, food stamps, um, po anti-poverty work, health care, affordable health care. Well, I'm going to come back to abortion. All of those things, affordable health care, poverty, on the surface, a lot of people would not say that's a religious issue. But we're Christians who say it is a religious issue, right? Feeding the hungry, helping the poor, clothing the naked. That's a religious issue for us. So then the question is, what does that mean? Now, I don't think that necessarily implies we're all going to vote the same way around those issues. But to say that those aren't issues that matter to us would, I think, be wrong. I would think. Now, someone else said abortion. Um, abortion rights are, in fact, a for many people, are a religious issue. However, a lot of religious people disagree about what the issue is. Some who are opposed to abortion say it's an issue of protecting life. Some who favor abortion rights say it's an issue of uh, protecting women and their rights and their freedom to make choices about their own body, and that's a religious issue. But it's a religious issue for both sides in many cases. What else? Marriage equality. The organization, full disclosure, the organization that I lead, the Covenant Network of Presbyterians, uh, advocates for LGBT equality in the Presbyterian Church. It's a church focus, not a social justice focused organization. But marriage equality is very much at stake in who is nominated to the Supreme Court. Both candidates agree about that. They just would op not hold the same view of who they would appoint. These are all religious issues. Do you have to be religious to care about those issues? So, why are they religious issues? Why do we choose to make them that way? So that's one way something becomes a religious issue. Religious people reach into their own faith tradition to find the supporting documents to support their opinion, which they may or may not have formed because of those supporting documents, <laughs> but they find them useful. <laughs> Am I right? Yes. What makes it a religious issue apart from the fact that we could find something in the Bible that maybe we could say applies. So uh, the, the heightened anxiety that, ref that our country currently is experiencing drives us to expand the resources we want to draw on, which in this case means we're going to call on those religious resources maybe in ways we wouldn't otherwise. I think... To me, and I think that's right, he says, and more intensely on each side, to me what makes an issue a religious issue is that it addresses, uh, to use Niebuhr's language, a matter of ultimate concern. 
Or was that Tillich? Thank you. I always mix. I always say Niebuhr when I mean Tillich, and I say Tillich when I mean Niebuhr. I, I mean, I know their work. I just I know why I do that. Um, Tillich calls it matters of ultimate concern. That, and I think that's it. I think what's changing in America is that more and more things seem like they are of ultimate concern. All of the things start to feel like they really, really matter. So this is a list of issues that the Pew Research study asked about and asked these different religious groups which ones are very important in deciding who to vote for in this year's presidential election. So they had very important, somewhat important, not important. The ones who said it was very important. Uh, This is small print. So it starts with economy. So notice that, that... Across the board, the people who think economy is least important are the unaffiliated, and they still, 78% of them still say it's very important. So it's 78 to 87%. Is the economy a religious issue? Yes, if it's a matter of ultimate concern. Now, if you'd asked me that 20 years ago, I mean, I would have been in college, but if if you'd asked me that 20 years, no, that's not true. I wish that were true. In seminary, um, I would have said, I don't really think that's a religious issue, but it's feeling that way now. Now, maybe that's just me, but I, I think we are growing in our sense that something is very important. They aren't saying it's important because it's a religious issue, to be clear. They're just saying they think it's important. But, but look at how some of this changes. So um, these are arranged in total uh, by, the, by the most important to the least important overall, among all voters. So economy is 84% all the way down to the bottom issue, treatment of gay, lesbian, transgender people, at 40%. But notice that (laughs) behind this podium, 29% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, say LGBT treatment is important, compared to 40% overall. 50% of unaffiliated they think it's more important than abortion. But white evangelicals, 52% of them say that's very important. Brian, could that be in part to the fact that the unaffiliated is probably a younger population? It's definitely a younger population. So, yes, you could control for age groups as well. I think there's a few other interesting tidbits in here. Look at education. I find that really interesting. Um, White evangelicals, you know, on these other issues, 70%, 78, 77, drops all the way to 59% on education. Why do you think that is? Maybe more private schooling, more homeschooling, not as important what's happening with public education funding. Look at um, uh, surprising above average for, uh, you know, Protestants care more about trade policy than the general population. Unaffiliated, 70% care about how racial and ethnic minorities are treated. Way above the average. Higher than at any other group. Second highest on the list, terrorism. 89% of evangelicals. 66% of unaffiliated. So religion and politics may be separate, but religion, for some reason, seems to be affecting people's political views, or at least what they think is important. I'm not sure that's coming from pulpits all the time, though. I don't think it's because evangelical pastors are all preaching every sermon about terrorism. I think people have sorted themselves into these groups along lines that are not purely theological. I think we've chosen our churches to some degree because of our politics. Is that a scandalous observation? Because if, if what Madison said was the purpose of separating religion and politics is true, that bo- the purity of both is compromised if you don't separate them, 
seems like his fear has come true to some degree. Politics has affected our religious choices. Yes? Yeah. Right. Well, and and so we could speculate as to why, what are the what are the things that lead people to identify certain issues as priorities? Um, is it because of fear that a white evangelical says terrorism is the higher priority? Um, maybe, although it doesn't say what their views are. So, so I could say it's very important to me that we elect a leader who is not going to overreact to terrorism. And I could say that's very important. So you don't know how they are voting necessarily by them saying it's important. But you might start to get some ideas here. <laughs> because this survey asked them directly. This was back in June. So think of <laughs> more than any other presidential campaign I remember, a lot has happened since June. <laughs> but among registered voters who are white evangelical Protestants, here are the percentages that in 2012 would vote for Romney and in 2016 would vote for Trump. The blue is Obama in 2012, Clinton in 2016. The dark red is strongly support Republican. The dark blue is strongly support the Democrat. These are white evangelicals. Donald Trump, I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys knew this, Donald Trump is not an evangelical. By birth, by training, by theology proclaimed. He has some support from some pretty high-powered evangelicals. He's not been an exceptionally religious person. But 78% of white evangelical Protestants supported Donald Trump in June. And I, I don't have any reason to think that number is all that different now. He doesn't reflect the things that for the last 15 years evangelicals have said are important in terms of character. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. I, I, I'm just saying, by his own admission, <laughs> his past is different than what white evangelicals would have accepted in a candidate in previous elections. But you could say the same thing down here. Among the religiously unaffiliated, 67% over 23% would support Hillary Clinton. See, we're, we are a divided nation along religious lines. Our politics are divided by our religions. I guess the question I want to end with is, is, is that a problem? And if it's a problem, what's the solution? Is it a problem? How many of you think that's a problem? Why is it a problem? So another trend in our politics has been the a polarization, a lack of willingness to compromise. If religion is part of the reason for the division, that would only seem to emphasize or exacerbate the polarization because if you're making your decisions based on the will of God, or what you believe is right, why would you compromise? It's what's right. It's the will of God. How can you compromise about that? It's an excellent point. What else? Why else is it a problem? <laughs> David is... Yeah, what, one of the things that I, I kind of wish about And so um, you're, you're, you, you only get certain information on the internet... If you're conservative, you watch Fox News. If you're liberal, you watch MSNBC. You don't, you don't get any of the other side's input. Um, so I, I see general consensus, I think, that this is a problem. The harder part is the solution. Now, you use the word dialogue, Dave. And I think the question is what, and maybe I'm going to make this our homework. <laughs> what does dialogue look like for you? How can we, because partly, you know, I complain about Facebook only showing me the things that it thinks I want to see. But you know what? <laughs> Every once in a while when I see something I don't want to see on Facebook, 
I unfriend. <laughs> right? So how do we as individuals commit to being the people who, in spite of what we believe is the will of God, are open to listening to someone else who thinks God's will is different from what we think? How do we do it? Very quickly, because I know I'm running out of time. American Public Square, yes. So there are organizations that are trying to model civility in how they engage in political discourse, bringing in people who disagree and uh, enforcing civility, <laughs> even, even ringing a bell if someone becomes uncivil in the conversation. That's American Public Square. Uh, I'm moderating some events for them over the course of the next year with KCUR, 89.3 FM. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good example. Other ways that we can have dialogue. How can you do it? Right. You do get Fox News on your TV, folks, <laughs> or MSNBC. Um, you can make an intentional effort. You can read a lot on the internet. So there's a cultural shift that needs to happen, which all of us can contribute in our own thinking and speaking, but but requires some others to join in with us in making it a we-oriented season in the life of our nation. A lot of that happens through leadership, and we can hope and pray for leadership that will will call out those good instincts from us. I know I'm out of time here, and you all have to go to church, so here's your homework. Here's your full homework. Pray. I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you to pray when we're talking about politics, but I I think that's the right answer. Prayer, remember, doesn't change God's mind necessarily. It allows God to, to work in us and, and work on us. I think that will be part of the solution. I invite you to study. Study not only the scriptures, but, but uh, do have that newspaper in one hand and Bible in the other. Was that Tillich or Niebuhr? I, 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 can't, I can't remember. Um, Bart? I don't know. I, uh, Carl Bart. Okay. I, you know, it's all early 20th century people. Um, Support the candidates and the issues that reflect your faith, your values, but then also respect your fellow believers who relying that, that we aren't the ones who have to transform the world in the end. That is God's job. Um, So we can approach this, even this, even this election, no matter how it turns out really with faith and with hope. May it be so. Thanks so much.